Over the past few months, we have been in a sermon series studying the life of Moses, and we have spent most of our time in the book of Exodus, and in the past couple weeks, we have looked at the book of Numbers for a couple of sermons, and last week, we were in Numbers chapter 20. We saw Israel fall into some of the same patterns of sin and faithlessness and doubting God, and we saw Moses himself also struggle with some of the same um, sin patterns of anger management and frustration uh, as he disobeyed God as well. Our passage today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 34, which is literally the last chapter in the life of Moses. And so we're in the book of Deuteronomy. If you're wondering how we got there, we're just zooming right through to the very end of Moses' life. So would you read with me Deuteronomy 34? Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Nephtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land opposite, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there, had not, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are just grateful for bringing each one of these people here today. No matter our distractions or our desire to even be here in the first place, it's no mistake that we are here and that you have brought each of us this morning. We ask that you would calm our minds and open our hearts to hear your word, that you would help us to see your face more clearly and to know you just as you know us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I think a lot of the time it can be hard for us to put our sh ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites, right? It can feel like that was such a long time ago, such a faraway place, such a different culture that we don't really understand what was going through their minds or feel the feelings that they were feeling. It feels like it's just apples to oranges. But I think over the past couple of weeks that a lot of us maybe individually or collectively have been struck by some of the same emotions that the Israelites are feeling in this passage as they grieve the loss of Moses. A couple of Fridays ago, Dr. Tim Keller passed away after a battle with cancer, and I think the Christian world was really rocked by the loss of such a giant. And this isn't the time for us to remember him and talk about all the great things that he did, but I think it's safe to say that hope wouldn't be the same as it is today without the ministry of Dr. Keller, and I think so many of us have been influenced personally, and our relationships with Jesus have been shaped in many ways by his ministry. Right, Tim Keller wasn't Moses, but 
I think for a lot of us, he belongs on the Mount Rushmore of Christian pastors or influences in our lives. And so losing him is a different kind of jolt to our system. But like Moses, Tim Keller would have, would have emphasized that his life and his death were never really about him. And so if you look at the internet or hear, hear stories of people t- sharing their anecdotes of meeting Keller or how a book or a sermon changed their life in some way, ultimately all of these really amazing stories are stories about God and God's faithfulness in and through the life of his servant. And we've seen now for the past couple of months all this turmoil in Moses' life. It began with a crazy birth scenario and then uh, a murder of an Egyptian and then an exile, a crazy call out of a burning bush, years in the wilderness, the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, all these ebbs and flows of Moses' life. But it's never really been about Moses and always about God. It's about what God can do through fragile and weak and messed up people. And so as we dive deeper into the death of Moses here this morning, I think even now we see that the emphasis is never really on the servant, as great as Moses was, but it's always on the Savior. There are three things I want us to look at this morning as we think about what this passage tells us about God. First, God's kindness. Second, God's intimacy. And third, God's promise. So let's begin with his kindness. In verses one through three, God takes Moses up onto a high mountain and gives him a 360 degree view of the promised land, the land of Canaan. It's like if you ever go on a hike and you get to the top of a mountain and there'll be one of those big wide panoramic maps that's kind of got the skyline out there and you see which peaks are named, what they're named and how far away they are, what their elevation is. And that's what God is showing to Moses. He's saying, this is the promised land. This is the land that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob even though you can never go in it. This is what verse four says. The Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you, Moses, see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. I think I have to admit, when I was reading this passage first this week, I couldn't really shake my sense of frustration and disappointment. All I could think was, is this really fair? Like, think about all the things that Moses did for God. And why can't God just forgive Moses and let him set foot in the promised land? Why can't he spend a day in the promised land or even be buried in the promised land? And Tripp talked about this some last week, but this wrestling of was it really necessary for God to deny Moses access to the promised land? I think if I was in Moses' shoes, it would be hard for me not to feel bitter Right? His whole life's mission, his whole life's goal has been about getting the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. After all he'd done for God, which is just way more than any of us could ever imagine doing, he'll never set foot in the promised land. And if he's not good enough to do it, then what makes me think I have any hope at all? I think no matter what stage of life we're in today, no matter how many gray hairs we have on our head, this is an important thing for us to wrestle with. What do I do when my plans, even my good and my godly plans, don't work out? What if I never achieve that one thing I want more than anything else in my life? When that promised land of milk and honey that I've been searching for for 40, for 50, for 60 years is so close and yet so far and forever out of reach. I think 
a lot of you here in this room have lived more life than me, and so I feel a little bit inadequate to even ask these legacy, kind of big life questions. But how have you in the past, how are you right now, how will you in the future deal with the inevitable disappointment of God changing your plans? When you get caught in that next wave of layoffs, when your kids aren't as well behaved as the family sitting next to you, when your marriage feels like it might not survive the month, when an injury takes away the sport that you love to play, do I trust God with my life? Can I trust God with my life when he wants to shape it differently than I want it to be shaped? Really the question is, do I want God or do I want the promised land, the milk and the honey, a family, a career, a vacation home? Do I want God or do I want the land of milk and honey? I know that I want to want God and I know that's what I'm supposed to want, but so often I don't think that's actually where my heart is. And so I think if we return to Moses here, standing atop that mountain with God, looking out at the promised land that he'll never get to enter, I don't think God is twisting the knife here or rubbing it in or saying, hey, this is that one little sin that's keeping you out of here. Yes, Moses' sin has consequences, but the emphasis on the passage isn't how bad Moses is, but that God is so good, that he's so faithful to fulfill his promises, that even when Moses has failed, that God is kind and gracious to offer him just a glimpse into the fulfillment of a promise that's been 500 years in the making. Not just for all of Israel, but for Moses, this is a promise that God made to him 40 years ago when God called him out of the burning bush. In Exodus chapter three, God spoke to Moses and said, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So as a grizzled Moses is standing there on the mountain, God graciously gives him a glimpse at the fulfillment of this promise. So for Moses, I don't think that this is a, a somber moment or a time filled with regret or feelings of what could have been. I think that no matter how badly he wanted to enter the physical promised land, that Moses knows he's headed for the capital P promised land, that he's headed to be with God forever. And so instead of a moment of pain, I think this is a moment of rest, that Moses has lived for 120 hard years, many of those in the wilderness and outside herding sheep. And verse seven actually tells us that Moses actually has a lot of life left to live, and it seems like he could keep on going, but God is calling his servant home, calling his servant to rest. He's not bound for the physical land of Judah, but he is bound for that heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly promised land. So even as he is dying, God is faithful and kind to his servant Moses. This leads us to our second point that in Moses' death, God is not just kind, but he is intimate with Moses. We look at verses five and six, it says this. It says, Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley, in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. 
to Moses, the servant of the Lord, dies. It's kind of an anticlimactic death, but then we see something surprising, that he's buried in secret by God himself. It doesn't get much more personal than breathing your last breaths with somebody and then that person actually burying you themselves. But that's what God does to Moses. And this isn't just a a quiet and peaceful death for Moses, but it's also, practically speaking, a way that God is protecting the Israelites from themselves. They've already shown themselves to be a people who are very quick to idolize and worship other things, but they've also just come out of the land of Egypt where they saw the Egyptians constantly worshiping and building huge pyramids to celebrate their dead. And so God says, I'm not even gonna give you all a chance for this to happen, and he buries Moses in secret. But it's not just that God is side by side with Moses looking out at the promised land, or even just that God buries Moses in his final breath. But in verse 10, we see something that's even more surprising, I think. It says, there has not arisen a prophet, in, a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Face to face. I think that's what stuck out to me the most as I was reading this text. Yes, Moses was the servant of the Lord. And if we were to look at the box score and we were to compare the statistics between Moses and any of the other prophets, Moses would have the most impressive stats. He'd be in the Hall of Fame and he'd be number one. But what set him apart more than anything else was that he knew God face to face. So I was going down this path of, okay, what does it mean to know God face to face and what would it look like for us today to know God this personally and intimately? I think I realized that I actually missed the most important part of the verse. Because it says this, it says, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. I was so ready to run with this idea that Moses was this great follower of God because he knew God face to face. But that's not what the text says at all. It says that the Lord is the one who knew Moses. The most important thing about Moses isn't that he was a great servant of the Lord. It's not that he parted the Red Seas or gave the Ten Commandments or led the Exodus. But the most important part about Moses, the legacy that matters more than anything else, is that God knew him face to face. I think this is a tiny distinction that makes all the difference in the world. Because it's easy for us to get caught up in the things that we, can, we think that we can do for God, like how much money I can give or all the ways I can serve, how I can use my career to benefit the kingdom. But I think we also are tempted to treat God like he's somewhere over there, maybe somewhere ambiguously up there, and that he's waiting for us to walk or to crawl or to stumble our way over to him. I think my initial reading is the way that I I tend to read the Bible generally, and I think a lot of us struggle with this. We think that Moses was an imperfect guy, but overall he was pretty good, maybe even great, because he was really close to God. And so if I want to follow Jesus, then I need to be seeking him, and I need to be reading my Bible more and listening to more sermons on podcasts and listening to worship music and praying with my kids, keeping a journal, doing all these things. I don't want to dismiss those as bad in any way because I think these are all ways that we can learn more about God and speak to God and hear from God. So don't hear me dissing those things in any way. But they're not the most important thing and they're definitely not the starting place for intimacy with God. 
there's a quote from Henry Nouwen that's on the front of your bulletin, and it's a kind of a long one, but with Ham on sabbatical, it's more of a quality than a quantity of quotes today, so <laughs> bear with me. But Henry Nouwen writes this. He says, for most of my life, I have struggled to find God, to know God, and to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, to pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. But now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not, how, can, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by Him? The question is not, how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. And I read this, and I'm just like, what if I actually believed this was true? What if I lived like this was true? Right, that the God of the universe, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Creator, the Sustainer, and the Redeemer of all things, that He's already out looking for me. He's searching for me. That if life is some cosmic game of hide and seek, that I am the one who's in hiding, and God is the one seeking, and not the other way around. As he is talking to new Christians living in the city of Corinth, Paul remembers that when Moses would return um, from, from the mountaintop, spending time with God, and he would go back to the Israelites, that his face would be shining so brightly with the glory of God. And the Israelites couldn't, take to, couldn't bear to look at his face because God's glory was reflecting so brightly that Moses had to put a veil over his face to cover up the, the brightness of God's glory. But now Paul says that because of Jesus, this barrier that separated us from seeing God and being seen by God is now gone. He writes this in 2 Corinthians. He says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the, the barriers that once stood between the Israelites and God have been torn down by Jesus. That veil is gone. There's no more need for a separator or a divider between us and God's glory. The Son of God put on human skin, lived the perfect life, and died the death that we deserved so that we could share in this intimacy that He has with the Father. There was once a barrier between sinners and God, but now there is access and endless invitation. And this reality that we can behold the glory of God with unveiled faces means that intimacy with God is possible because God has first come near to us, not because we are doing anything or following the right steps to get to Him. We don't get close to God by cleaning up our act and making ourselves look more and more like Him. But instead, by God drawing near to us, He is making us look more and more like Him. He is transforming us into the image of His Son by simply being near to us. That we can draw near to God because He is already drawing near to us. 
We can know him because he knows us. We can love him because he loves us. And even if this doesn't feel like the reality in your life right now, I love C.S. Lewis's line that Aslan is always on the move, that God is always at work. He's always moving towards you. This brings us to our final point, the promise of God. The last few verses in our text are kind of like an obituary that you would read in a newspaper about Moses, right? The, the, his tombstone might have read the servant of the Lord, if they could have found his tombstone, but his obituary would have read something like verses 10 to 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. In other words, up until this point, Moses is the greatest prophet Israel and the world has ever seen. He'd helped perform more miracles and display the power of God unlike anyone else in history. And we're reading this and we think, okay, great. What, what does this matter for me? And I'm really glad you asked. That's a great question to ask the Bible all the time. But if you have your Bible with you, let's flip to Deuteronomy chapter 18, just a few pages earlier, where Moses is in the middle of reestablishing the law. He's, about, he's giving the law to Israel once again, reminding them of it before they enter the promised land. And in the middle of doing this, he pauses for a second to give a prophecy straight from God. He says this. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the God himself directly says, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So in the last days of him leading the Israelites, Moses pauses to give this prophecy about another prophet, a greater prophet who in some ways would be like Moses. He would be an Israelite. He would mediate between the people and God, but there would be something different about him, that the people would listen to him and something would change. And throughout Israel's history, they had a lot of prophets and a lot of people who gave the word of the Lord to the people, but they realized that none of these prophets quite fit this description, that no one was actually changing things like Moses had promised. So they began to interpret this as a messianic prophecy, as a, a passage that was pointing forward about the Messiah, they began to realize that this prophet Moses talked about was a, a capital P prophet, the Messiah, the one that would actually save Israel. So as Deuteronomy is closing here with listing off some of the greatest things, the greatest hits in Moses' life, it's actually looking forward, looking beyond Moses, uh, uh, foreshadowing the greater prophet that would follow him. The author is basically saying, Moses is the greatest prophet the world has ever seen, dot, 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 so far. And if we fast forward through the Old Testament, there's some, some brief highs, a lot of low lows for Israel. And eventually, God stops speaking to the Israelites. There's over 400 years of silence, and God's people are scattered all across the world. The Roman Empire is dominating everything, and God's people are desperate for this Messiah, for this prophet to come. And so when John the Baptist enters the scene, everyone is desperate to know who he is. And they ask him in John chapter one, are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. And then they ask him, are you the prophet? 
with a capital P, and he says, no, I'm not the prophet. But he says, I'm pointing forward to someone who's coming after me who's greater than me. And that someone who followed John was named Jesus. And Jesus began to teach and he began to serve and perform these miracles and gain this big following. And one day he fed over 5,000 people. And as these 5,000 plus people were eating and, and reveling in the miracle that Jesus had done, had done in John chapter six, you see that when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then a few days after that, um, Jesus has, begun, has been teaching about how living water is gonna be pouring out of the hearts of God's people, giving new life in the Holy Spirit through people. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. God's people were desperate for this prophet that would be greater than Moses, and God fulfilled that promise with his own son, Jesus. So even in the death of Moses, even with the words meant to celebrate the greatest things he's ever done, Moses' entire life is about more than himself. Like we just sang, the song Christ Be Magnified, that's what Moses' whole life's mission was, Christ be magnified. I think there's one more thing for us to see here um, in Deuteronomy 34 and with the death of Moses, because here he dies before he ever gets to enter the promised land. His time on earth is up. The people are grieving and mourning the loss of their hero and leader. But as is the case with God, death doesn't get the last word. And while Moses is rumored throughout the entire Old Testament, as people get more and more desperate for this greater Moses to come, he finally comes on the scene, and then Moses himself makes a cameo. He gets a, a post-credit scene, if you will. In Luke chapter 9, um, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on top of, of a mountain to pray, and we see this scene. And while he, as Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. There's so much in this packed couple of verses that we don't have time to unpack, but I love how this moment, which we call the transfiguration, remembering and celebrating the divinity of Jesus as the Son of God, also gives us a, a kind of fitting into the life of Moses. Just geographically, first of all, we see that this takes place inside the promised land, that Moses is with Jesus and with the disciples on top of a mountain in the land of Canaan that Moses had previously never gotten to set foot in. So now, for the first time, God, just for a moment, lets Moses set foot inside the land that he had promised. Secondly, we see that God continues this face-to-face -face fellowship with Moses even after his death. That, God, that Moses is known by God 
not just for a few moments in his life, not just at his death, but for all eternity. There's a deep fellowship that Moses gets to share with God and an intimate knowing and being known. And then finally, as Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, we see that they're talking about his departure. And that word for departure in the Greek is the exact same word as the word for exodus. So in other words, what they're talking about is how the exodus that Moses led was great and it brought God's people out of the land of Egypt, but it was always just a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the exodus, the departure that Jesus would lead, leading his people out from the, ch- the, cha- the chains and the shackles of sin and death. The author of Hebrews remembers Jesus and remembers Moses as the greatest servant of God. But he says that Jesus wasn't just a servant, but Jesus came as a son. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him, is what God said on the mountain. I think throughout the crazy life of Moses, and even in the quietness and the personal intimacy of his death, Moses is always pointing us forward, always inviting us to look ahead, not at the servant, but at the savior. I think maybe the good news for us is that Moses was a mixed bag with a lot of bad and a lot of good, right? He was impulsive, he was angry, he was full of self-doubt, but he was also faithful, he was long-suffering, and he was obedient. And God doesn't define Moses by the good or the bad that he did, but Moses is instead remembered and defined by the God who knew and loved and pursued him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you are a God who seeks us, that you are a God who knows us before we know you. We pray that you would see us and that we would felt, feel seen by you and that we would look to you and see you as you see us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.